0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levi Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today.
1: The wine legacy of Jerez is linked directly to the region's strategic location. Jerez sits on the Atlantic, just in front of the Strait of Gibraltar. And over the millennia, the region has attracted many merchants. During seafaring years, the city of Cadiz became extremely important as one of the major ports in Europe. Ships passing into the Mediterranean would pass by Cadiz and could resupply. Ships passing out of the Mediterranean could stop and trade or sell their wares. Ships heading west to the Americas could stock up for the Atlantic journey before heading out without entering the Mediterranean or paying any tariffs at the strait. A bustling, multicultural trade society powered by wealthy merchants from all over the known world made this region one of the most important places in Europe. Because it's such an important place, especially in the pre-airplane era when distance trading between kingdoms revolved around seafaring, Everybody wanted a piece of Jerez. If you look at the important port city of Cadiz, it switched hands many times over a period of 3,000 years. A few of the factions that controlled Cadiz over the years included the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Visigoths, and the Moors. For much of this 3,000 year history, grapes were grown in the region and wine was made. Wine production was most likely introduced by the Phoenicians, It flourished under most of Roman rule, but later, under Moorish rule, alcohol consumption was made illegal. But ironically, the Moors also brought distillation to the region, and this helped set the stage for fortified wines of the future. Under Spanish rule, wine production picked up once again, and the Jerez region became an important port area where explorers would leave Europe to head west. Both Columbus and Magellan began expeditions from Jerez, and before they left, they stacked up on... You guessed it, wine, a good portion of which was local. During Spain's conquistador age, the port at Cadiz served as the home of the Spanish Armada, and nearby Seville became, by law, the only place in which goods from the New World could be unloaded from treasure fleets. This made Seville and Cadiz and the surrounding areas extremely wealthy, while also making the area a magnet for all the competing parties who wanted Spain's American gold and other goods. The port was regularly attacked and looted by the British, including a raid by Sir Francis Drake, who crippled the Spanish Navy in his attack and brought back an enormous amount of sherry to Britain. Britain wanted Spain's treasures, and Britain also attempted to divert Spanish goods from the Americas to Britain instead of Spain, mostly through privateers, or pirates, who ransacked treasure ships. Spain's answer to the pirates who pestered the Atlantic was the formation of a treasure fleet. The concept was based on strength in numbers. When the ships sailed as a large group, they were less likely to be attacked. Also, with goods and wealth spread between the ships, if one ship were to be looted or lost, the fleet would have hedged its bets and lost just a small portion of what they could have lost as a smaller group of ships. Conquistadors in America set up highly organized trade routes that systematically funneled wealth from the Americas to Spain. Gold and silver and other types of goods would be checked in and logged at storehouses throughout the Americas, and they'd be moved and shuffled until they came to one of a few export storehouses. And when the fleets would arrive, the booty would be loaded on the ships in one lump. The fleets would bring all the American loot back to Spain in one group, and they'd pass right by Jerez in the process. The influx of riches meant that wealthy merchant locals could afford to drink plentifully of the local production, and regional wine would find its way into empty cargo holds on the journey back to the Americas. Jerez Wines experienced a boon. Spain became extremely wealthy during the colonial period, and the more money Spain had, the better the wine business did. Sherry was being exported around the world from this bustling port region, including the Americas, Sherry was one of the most famous wines in the world. But in subsequent wars, Jerez lost export markets because Spain went to war with them. And more recently, air travel rendered the area's location strategically less important. Sherry once helped fuel colonial trade and the extremely successful merchants who based themselves there. But circumstances have changed. Today, the treasures of the area are not sailing by in the cargo holds of treasure fleets coming from South America. Instead, the treasures lie in the cellars of the sherry producers. If you think about it, the spectrum of sherry wines is as varied as the history of the region and all the cultures and individuals who helped to shape such a unique place and product. Stay tuned to top up your sherry knowledge with some insider details from a bastion of Jerez. I guarantee you'll learn something interesting. Because, how can I say this exactly right? The more I learn about Sherry, the more I'm simply floored.
0: (laughs) I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to IdealWine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers, with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to IdealWine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Antonio Flores of Gonzales Bias on the show today. Hello, sir, how are you? Buenos dias, Levi. So you were actually born at the bodega of Gonzales Bias.
2: Yo me siento un verdadero afortunado. He nacido dentro de la bodega.
3: I feel incredibly fortunate to have been born in the winery. My my father was the previous uh, technical director of González Bias, and I myself was born within the winery. Um, which uh, is is not just something uh, that you can say to people. It's something that really has a powerful effect on your life. And I always say that in my veins, I don't have blood running through me. I have Tio Pepe.
2: You
3: have to imagine almost what González Bias is. It's almost a city within a city. We have our own streets, we have our own buildings, our own houses. Uh, we even have our own consulate, a diplomatic consulate there to countries such as uh, Sweden and uh, Italy.
0: And when did your dad first start work at González Bias?
2: Bueno, yo puedo decir que mi padre empezó con 14 años. Era el chico
3: I can say that my father really started at González Bias uh, when he was 14 years old. He really began as what you might call uh, an errand boy doing the most basic of tasks and really uh, had the most uh, a, a phenomenal career that took him through all of the different aspects of winemaking at the winery uh, from what we describe in Jerez in, in as a, as a botón, was like a button, a small uh, piece of the, uh, of the operation, to being the technical director at the very top.
0: And what was your dad like as a person?
2: Era una persona, pues... He
3: was a really phenomenal man. He was really great at what he did. Uh, his reputation is, still echoes in, in Jerez as being not just somebody that was a phenomenal at their job, very, very gifted, um, but also somebody uh, with a very big heart, somebody who really helped people. And he part of the reputation that he's left behind as well, the legacy that he's left behind, uh, is his effect uh, on people that he works with, the, his ability to be able to help people progress in their careers. Uh, when Antonio was young, he was certainly hard as well. Uh, and that certainly, Antonio thinks, has, has helped his own personal development. And when did
0: you decide that you'd like to follow in your father's footsteps at the winery?
3: Yo,
2: verdaderamente fue algo que me llevó la vida a ello porque yo mi primera mi
3: Well, interestingly, I don't think that it was something that came to me at the very beginning. I think like often in childhood, uh, something that your parents do isn't the first thing that calls to you, perhaps. Uh, I, in fact, first off wanted to, I was first interested in joining the Navy, the Spanish Navy. I was very attracted to that lifestyle and then later on decided that maybe I'd have an opportunity in journalism. And then finally, as I grew a little bit older, I started to spend more time with my father in the winery. I really enjoyed learning about the winery with him. Uh, we we used to uh, uh, use the Venencia together and explore the barrels together. Uh, and it's certainly something that really began calling to me in, in, in quite a powerful way. Um, I, I think it's very natural when you grow up and you spend time out in the winery and start to realize just how magical the wine world is. I also... Was uh, received my uh my uh, qualifications, my degree from the first uh, university in Spain offering a, a degree in uh in onology, and uh from there on in it was a clear decision. What
0: was your childhood like in Jerez? fue una yo lo digo y
2: vuelvo a repetirlo soy un afortunado mi niñez fue una niñez.
3: It was my childhood was uh, more than anything; it was just incredibly happy. I've said it before, and I'll, I'll, I'll return to say it again: that I'm incredibly fortunate to have had a childhood uh, that was based around growing up in the winery of González Baez. It, it was something that that really was surrounded always. I was always surrounded by by a happy, positive uh, atmosphere. Quoting the 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 poet uh, Davio Paz, who said famously that. Your childhood really is is the only real uh, inheritance that we have, the only real, perhaps the only real country that we can aspire to belong to. And I'm just very fortunate that mine was so happy and positive.
2: Yo siempre digo que el sentido del olfato es el sentido más sensible que que tiene el ser humano. Y recordando,
3: I always think that the most powerful sense that we have is our olfactory sense, our sense of smell. And really, when I think back to my childhood, I think back to those days when I used to come back from the beach with my father and we'd enter into the house and we'd open our front door and the house smelled of sherry. That's my childhood.
0: You have, Ed Gonzalez, be several bodegas. Were those areas for you to play in as a kid? Did you get a chance to run around the, the different casks?
2: Parece que Levi conoce mi vida.
3: It seems like uh, you, Levi, Levi you, uh, you know my life. Mi padre tenía una pequeña puerta
2: que Chris la conoce para entrar en la bodega. Daba directamente a la bodega. Mi padre siempre.
3: There was in my house when I was a child a small door that opened directly into the winery. And it was always my dream that my father would leave the house forgetting to lock that door because that was my entrance to my own little world. I would run out there and uh, and, and play amongst the barrels and really created this whole universe in which I myself was, was the prince.
0: What was Jerez like at that time? Was it a place similar to now or was it a different kind of environment during that era? Jerez ha cambiado porque Jerez cuando yo era niño... Vivia por
2: y para el vino, la industria más importante y, más, ¿eh? y, y y sobre todo importantísima era el vino. No solamente eran
3: las Really, it's, Jerez as a city has, has changed quite dramatically over the years. Uh, when I was young, we lived off and for sherry. The, the sherry production was the economic driver of the city. And and it wasn't just the wineries themselves that were involved in this business. Of course, you had the graphic companies, the graphic design companies, the bottling companies, uh, and every, all of the business that comes around wine production uh, made uh, sherry and the production of wines from the region the driver, economically speaking, for the region. And now unfortunately there's been quite a bit of change and sherry production is not the economic driver of the city. So yes, you could say that quite a lot has changed.
2: Le voy a contar una anécdota, Levy. Mi padre estuvo trabajando más de 50 años en Gonzálezbia. Cuando se jubiló le hicieron mucho homenaje en Villa en Inglaterra, lo la-
3: Interestingly, my, my father spent 50 years working in González Bias, And so when he retired, uh, it was quite a big uh, change to the company and indeed to the city. And so as a consequence of, of his retirement, there was a lot of people that came out to, to pay homage to him and leave him some, some words of dedication. But interestingly, the dedication that was the most uh, emotional for my father to hear was from Dumecq. Demec of course our our competitor in the city and that's an important point.
0: What do you think your father's legacy really was in terms of the wines? Bueno,
2: yo siempre digo, Levi que jeréis los enólogos no somos enólogos estrella, no hacemos vinos de autor. Eh yo creo que eso es un poco de soberbia por parte de...
3: I always say that the, the role of a winemaker in Gareth is not at all that of a star winemaker or, or uh, of a, a winemaker of, uh, of auteur uh, wines. Uh, it was certainly more more of a humble role, much more of a subtle role, in fact. And it's the responsibility of receiving a collection of wines and looking after them during your entire career, keeping them in not only the exact same level of quality, if not trying to increase it during your career, but also in the distinct style of the house, and then handing it to the next generation of winemakers in the same style and of the same quality.
2: Algunos de los vinos que llevo a la cata de mañana del seminario de añadas de González Vía no los selecciono, y yo los selecciono.
3: In the seminar that, that I'm going to give tomorrow about the vintage uh, wines of Jerez, I'm going to be showing wines that I didn't select, but my, my father selected. And in the same vein... I'm at the moment right now in the winery selecting wines that I'm not gonna that I'm not gonna try. Well, I will try them. I'm obviously trying them, uh, but I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to be drinking them. I'm not going to be uh, showing them. That's gonna be for the next generation.
0: And so, when you went to the university and they taught you about wine, did they instill in you this idea of a wine as a multi generational process, or what? What kind of education was it when you went to learn at enological school?
2: Fue pues realmente una formación amplísima. Estudié edafología, viticultura, etnología, química orgánica, química inorgánica. Eso es una formación básica. Realmente yo la formación real la recibí de mi padre en la bodega.
3: Well, uh, my oenology degree was, was, in fact, incredibly, incredibly diverse, covering everything from viticulture to oenology to uh, organic uh, chemistry to uh, inorganic chemistry. But you could say that my real training as a winemaker, I received from my father in the winery.
0: So you come back to the bodega, and in terms of making a wine that seems so much about the process of time and about the process of blending... What does it mean to be a winemaker of such a large bodega? Bueno,
2: bodega González One thing
3: very important to understand about a, a, a winery with the history of González bias we, we're talking about a history of, uh, of almost uh, two centuries here, is that. When I entered into the winery, we already had the production processes very firmly established and very firmly put into place. Uh, and really, a, a funny example of this was in the 1990s when we uh, acquired uh, IT systems to uh, improve our efficiency in the winery and to improve the communication, etc. And really, we, we were given a, an IT system that was designed to help us sell wines, and interestingly, the, we had to change it. It wouldn't work for us. We the, the IT system had to change itself around the format of a sherry winery because it wasn't at all set up for it in the beginning. Uh, and uh, so this is this is certainly something that's that's very important um, to to understand with it with the size of the winery that we are.
2: Imagínate lo que es hoy en día eh, implantar un sistema de trazabilidad. En un sistema de criadera y solera donde todo se mezcla y todo se corre a la vez.
3: Just imagine what it is like trying to implement a uh, a traceability tracking system for a solera system in which the wines are just continually blended into each other. It's it's very difficult to achieve.
2: Si un a toda la if,
3: if there was a small kind of uh, error or mistake, it could affect the whole winery for or itself.
0: hundreds of years yes, potentially yeah,
3: yeah, yeah of course
0: the palomino fino grapes come into the winery and what decisions are you thinking about what's important to you as the harvest is happening fíjate eh, la palomino fino dicen de ella que es una varietal
2: poco expresiva y yo no estoy de acuerdo eh. no hay una varietal
3: when the Palomino Fino arrives into the winery, uh, it's interesting. People will often say that it's a varietal that isn't very expressive, isn't very aromatic. I, I don't really agree. If you look at the huge amount and variety of incredibly aromatic wines that are produced from Palomino, you realize that really it is a, a varietal with a huge aromatic potential. And so when we, when I receive that Palomino Fino into the winery, my first thought that goes through my head is how much free-run juice, uh, and how much of uh, that light-first pressing am I going to need for my Tio Pepe and, of course, for my rare vintage cherries? That's the, f- the first the first thing that I look to analyze.
0: How much of the production of Gonzalez BS is Tio Pepe? Nosotros somos
2: una bodega con vocación de fino, de crianza biológica. La mayor parte de nuestro fino van de...
3: We're certainly a house really dedicated to the production of Fino. Uh, so that's really our, our primary concern when it comes to the volume uh, of wine that we'll be directing into different directions in the winery. I would say that 60% of the Palomino that we receive is destined to be grown into uh, Tio Pepe. And then we have the, the remaining wine from which we'll Derive our olorosos, our palo cortados, our mediums, our creams, etc.
0: And how much of those derivatives actually feed from the Teo Pepe Solera? Well,
2: we have our theoretical.
3: Projections whereby we assume how much wine will be needed for our other wines, for example, our olorosos, our monteados Palacortados, cortados, etc. No, but a really, this a de la Gama. No, not a monteados, sorry. But this really. This really comes from the rhythm of sales. And so to some extent, and to really quite a small extent, we have to allow ourselves some room for maneuver to deviate the aging of wines from Tio Pepe into other aging styles uh, if the sales demand uh, changes, for example. But really we're talking about a minority. We're talking about no more than 10% ever of of the wine.
2: Los mercados y por lo tanto las necesidades no se mueven drásticamente de un año para otro. The,
3: the change of the rhythm of sales is never drastic. It never is from one year to another. Normally we have some time to see it coming.
0: And what have the changes been over the course of your career? You start in 1980, and what has been the course of the sherry market since you took over as a winemaker?
2: Bueno, realmente eh, yo llegué al mundo profesional del vino. El one of September de 1980 in plena vendimia, he alcanzado...
3: I entered in, into the this business formally on the first of September in 1980, right at the beginning of, of Harvest, as you can imagine. And when when I entered in, I really came at a time that was quite difficult for Khedith because we, we were just seeing the beginnings of the decline from what was a much appreciated grape wine to to something that was was less appreciated by the market, you know, a lot in part as well to negative business practices in the city of Khedith of selling in large quantities at very low prices, which really was very destructive. And I really was never sure that I was going to see the day when the wine would return back to its place of prestige, where it once was. And of course, this is this is in part what we're seeing at the moment. Yo
2: muchas veces, uh, bueno, pues, a, a mis alumnos en el Cherry Master, a, a los participantes en mis catas les digo que se acerquen a Jerez sin miedo. Al vino hay que acercarse sin miedo. Y ya se aprenderá con el tiempo. ¿Eh? Porque muchas veces digo que Jerez no es fácil, pero también me hago una pregunta. ¿Hay algo en la vida que sea fácil y merezca la, pe- y merezca la pena? ¿A que no? Todo lo que merece la pena exige cierta dedicación, cierto esfuerzo para entenderlo. Y Jerez, os garantizo que merece la pena.
3: I always say to my students of my Sherry Master Course and the people with, which I sh- with whom I share tastings, I always suggest to approach Sherry without fear. Approach it confidently, discover it confidently. This is certainly not always easy as a wine, uh, but I, 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 always, I always say there really, is there, is there anything easy in life that's worth achieving? No, to be honest, everything worth achieving in life requires a certain degree of difficulty. Uh, Jerez certainly uh, has that in its wines, um, but it's certainly something that's, that's worth the challenge. It
0: must have been quite scary to take over at a part that feels like the start of a decline. Right as you arrive, it seems like the market tends to shift. And given the example of your father, it must have been a lot of pressure on you to try to succeed.
2: Es dificultad, muchísimo miedo, sobre todo cuando eres hijo de una persona que ha sido muy importante en el mundo del vino y tú eres para todos los demás el hijo
3: It was difficult. It was certainly scary in the early days coming into the, the company at a at a difficult time for the market, but uh, above all being the son of Miguel Flores. You know, for, for, as we say in Spanish, uh, someone that's plugged in, you know. Uh, somebody, the the rest of the winery in your, the beginning of your career see as being the boss's son. It certainly makes it difficult when you have before you um, your father who has done such tremendous work and, and developed such a tremendous reputation in the region. You really have to prove yourself to be as good as, if not better, than the legacy left by your father. Uh, I hope that I have... Perhaps come close to, to this, but it's certainly something that was very difficult in the early days.
0: So, Tio Pepe is one of the most widely distributed sherry brands in the world. And how many casks are represented by the Solera for Tio Pepe? Are we talking about 10,000, 20,000? Hay
2: actualmente aproximadamente botas arriba, botas abajo, 21.400 <inaudible> botas.
3: Right now, including all of the wines that we have in the whole system and all of the criaderas and all of the soleras, we're talking at around 21,400 barrels.
0: And how do you maintain consistent quality across that many separate barrels? Realmente es el
2: secreto de Tio Pepe, eh? porque todas esas potas están repartidas en distintas soleras que están en distintas bodegas, donde la flor de alguna manera la levadura se comporta de una manera diferente dependiendo del del grado de humedad de la temperatura de cada bodega. Reproducir ese sistema en cada bodega que después el blend de toda esa solera hace que Tío Pepe sea inimitable, porque hay que tener 21.400 botas y 20 soleras y hacer la mezcla. Eso es muy difícilmente
3: irritable. This really is the secret of Tio Pepe, having so many barrels across the 20 soleras of Tio Pepe, all in different bodegas, and all in with barrels in, in very different locations within each bodega. Uh, within each barrel, of course, in each of these uh, locations, in each microclimate, we see the flor yeast responding very differently. And really the the, the skill and the art of, of maintaining Tio Pepe as it is, it comes down then into the blending of maintaining that constant blend from all of these different soleras which give you wines of, of different personalities.
0: So how should I understand floor in terms of what it does and how it acts differently in different places? How should I understand this force?
2: Eh, yo digo que la levadura, la flor, es una auténtica superviviente. Se adapta al medio. Se adapta a, al grado de
3: Really, there are four key different types of uh, Saccharomyces yeast and understanding the different personalities and different movements of each of these different four types of yeasts is the key behind uh, understanding the, the the growth of the Florida yeast. So, firstly, we have the Saccharomyces. Las poblaciones de esas
2: levaduras van a variar dependiendo de la bodega. Hay, dependiendo, por ejemplo... En Bodega Constancia habrá más Beticus que Chericiensis en Las Copas a lo mejor hay más Montuliensis, son distintas. Entonces el, el recuento de levadura es distinto dependiendo de cada bodega y por lo tanto la evolución de esa flor en cada solera también es distinta.
3: So in each one of our wineries we'll have certain different uh, subgenomes of, of Saccharomyces that will be taking the leading role we might have in one bodega, the Saccharomyces beticus becoming more potent, for example, uh, and uh, so it's learning how these different types of Saccharomyces yeast uh, or will affect the wine in different ways.
2: Aunque el sistema de criadera y solera es un sistema dinámico, un sistema en movimiento, yo digo que cada bota representa un mundo vivo completamente... We have, on top of the different
3: types of genus of, of Saccharomyces yeast. We have, of course, each barrel, which can really be considered as its own universe. We have within each barrel uh, a different expression of the same process, which is the, the Saccharomyces yeast uh, consuming the uh, the nutrients in the wine, primarily nitrogenous materials and the, uh, the organic acids, and then reproducing, firstly multiplying by Two by four, and before very quickly we have this this huge this huge colony of yeast cells, which will eventually die and then start to aliment the wine once again. So we have this whole process that plays out very differently within each
2: barrel. So in this
3: way, we can say that the whole life cycle is completed in within each. Barrel of wine in the aging process, in the biological aging process.
0: And what is the taste of flor? If I'm tasting flor, what am I tasting? What does it yes, taste like? Si vienes alguna vez a Jerez, te lo daré a probar.
2: Eh, el, el la flor eh, sabe fundamentalmente a mantequilla. Es un sabor como tres pan con mantequilla, podríamos decir. Es pan, mantequilla y sal. Fundamentalmente son
3: if you come to the winery uh, one day, uh, Levy, uh, I'll give you the opportunity to taste it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting flavor. It, you could say that it tastes quite a lot like uh, butter. It's quite full and, and round flavor. But at the same time, it gives you a, a quite a, a yeasty, bready component. You could even say that it tastes like butter on bread with a little bit of salt.
0: And do you find flour, you know, because it's in the air, so do you find it in other contexts of your everyday life like do you ever find maybe you're making a potato soup and uh, in the kitchen and the floor starts to grow over it or
2: absolutamente si pudiéramos mirar al microscopio las paredes de una bodega de jerez veríamos que están tapizadas
3: Indeed, absolutely. If you were to take a microscope to the walls of a bodega, you would see that it was absolutely covered with a flora yeast. Uh, you could go even further. You could you could take a completely stable bottle of Pepe, That's to say, a bottle that's been filtered and stabilized. And you could serve a glass and uh, leave that glass on a table in the bodega, and you could come back a week later and see development of the flor on top of the wine. I mean, really, I refer to this yeast as a super survivor. Uh, its potential for colonization is just tremendous.
0: So, speaking of filtering, not too long ago, you introduced a Teo Pepe en Rama. And how is that different than the normal Teo Pepe, and what led you to that introduction?
2: Well, bueno, realmente uh eh, Martin Skelton, que era era y es nuestro director in en, en UK, in en the Reino Unido.
3: In its origins, I was one day tasting in the winery with uh, Martin Skelton, who is the uh, managing director of Gonzalez Bias UK our uh, United Kingdom distribution company, and also with Toby Morrill, uh, the buyer for the wine society in the United Kingdom for the fortified wines and the three of us were barrel tasting from barrel to barrel and we were tasting Tio Pepe straight from the barrel thick and, and, and really pungent and aromatic full of flor yeast and the conversation arose from there and there was uh, some interest from Toby and then uh, he proposed the the idea and Antonio says well if you can sell it I'll I'll bottle it for you and so we did, we did, we did a Saka, we did, we uh, bottled 16,000 bottles in total. And uh, that was, that. that's remained constant since then, that, that production. And the whole quantity was sold in the United Kingdom in 48 hours. I, I referred to it back then as a wild Tio Pepe and Toby, the wine society referred to it as the Tio Pepe that you, that you chew, you know, it's so textured. Uh, and uh, since then uh, the, it's been something that has been
2: that's been really successful votas de las que antes, directamente, directamente.
3: and so what is tio pepe en rama well tio pepe en rama is the selection of 60 Barrels, 60 of the best barrels of this 21,400 collection that we spoke about previously, bottled completely en rama. That is to say, without any filtration, without any uh, clarification, without any cold stabilization, straight from the barrel into the bottle, passing just through a thin, very fine, very minimal uh, metal gauze, you know, which really only takes out any possible mosquitoes or flies that might have entered uh, into the barrel for its various uh, years aging. As a consumer, how would I enjoy
0: Tio Pepe and Rama as opposed to Tio Pepe? I mean, would I use it at a different time, different time of year? Would I drink it with different food? Or should I consume it at a different rate? Should I drink that bottle earlier?
2: Bueno, no, yo creo verdaderamente que entre tío Pepe y tío Pepe en Rama
0: hay una ligera diferencia,
2: sobre todo de poder.
3: Really, the difference between tío Pepe and tío Pepe and Rama can be described as a difference of organoleptic te- potency in expression. Really, when it comes to, if it comes down really to context, I suppose you could say. So you know, if you're in a context where you're where you're likely to be having a a few different glasses of wine over 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 the evening, uh, then you'd find be perhaps finding the perfect match with Tio Pepe. If you're looking to have a very small amount of something more expressive, uh, then that's when you'd perhaps go for a tío pepe and rama. But really, when it comes to style of pairings with styles of cuisine, we're talking about very much the same cuisine. We begin with the with the uh, jamón ibérico, of course, the charcuteries, the aper- aperitif, early dishes, uh, light tapas, for example, and goes perfectly well, of course, into the whole world of the different styles of Asian cuisines and, and so on.
0: And out of the Enrama project, also developed the Palmas project shortly after. And, and how did that all happen? El
2: proyecto de tío Pepe Enrama eh, y de las Palmas, yo creo que es un proyecto conjunto. Era mi ilusión por sacar a la calle, sacar al mundo.
3: Really, they can be considered these two projects of the teopa Rama and the las palmas finos. they can be considered as a as a joint project in a way or certainly one that came from the other. and for me, it, op- it offered just this amazing opportunity to be able to take out to the street to really take out to the world these these amazing uh, gems that we have aging in 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 the cellar to be able to take them out in their natural state and show them to people so of course, we have the TPPN rama the the unfiltered uh very select Tio Pepe. And then we have the Palmas project, which is really exploring the aging potential in the world of uh, biological aging and its effect on Palomino wines. And this was, this was really my, my desire and the success of the Enrama project gave me so much confidence then to take this forward and bring out some of the further age gems uh, that we have uh, aging, aging in the winery. And this became uh, the Las Palmas project.
0: So with Enrama and Las Palmas, what I expect that those wines would get better with bottle age once I purchased it
2: sí, evidentemente eso lo hemos ido comprobando con el paso del tiempo en las primeras ediciones pues no sabíamos qué es lo que iba a pasar realmente no teníamos experiencia de embotellar absolutamente
3: this is really something that we've been discovering over the passage of time since we began these projects we've been watching how they develop this really is the really were the first project of this kind which in which we were bottling purely purely en rama wines and so really we've been discovering along with the aging of the wines obviously as you can imagine they do over time lose a sense a certain freshness but from that loss of freshness of course what they gain is all of the expressions from the process of autolysis. And a huge amount of complexity can build up in these wines. And in fact, I, I always say that real aficionados, wine aficionados, I, I recommend that they keep a few bottles of these Enrama bottlings to see how they will evolve with the passage of time.
0: What is the relationship between the Del Duque and the Fino that we've already spoken about?
2: Realmente, eh, estamos hablando del mismo vino. Del Duque, que es? Del Duque es un bor, un vino categorizado por por nuestro Consejo Regulador.
3: Well, really, we're we're talking about essentially uh, different expressions of the same wine here. The Del Duque, of course, is our VORS 30 uh, years um, aged amontillado, which has gone through the whole process of biological aging, moving into the amontillado oxidative aging process. And, And in fact, a very instructive. A tasting that I often do is to put together Tio Pepe next to Vigna Abe, a uh, young Amontillado, next to Del Duque uh, VORS, 30 years uh, Amontillado, and I call this tasting the ages of Tio Pepe because you really see the complete progression of biological aging as it moves then into oxidative aging in the Amontillado aging process.
0: One of the things you do that's somewhat interesting is that with the Palo Cortado Apostoles, you age Palomino Fino wine in old used Pedro Jimenez barrels.
2: No es exactamente tampoco así. Nosotros eh, seleccionamos un Pedro, un Palo Cortado, en este caso de la Solera de Leonor, con 12 años.
3: It's not exactly that. Really what we do in the production of Apostoles is we select uh, Leonor Palo Cortado, which is a 12-year-old Palo Cortado, at which point we will uh, make a small addition of Pedro Jiménez, uh, creating a blend of 87% Palo Cortado, Leonor, and 13% of Pedro Jiménez. Then these two varietals will, after being, as we say, in Jerez, married together, they will then be further aged in Solera to another minimum of 18 years, giving us an incredible harmony from these three very important factors, the American oak, the palomino fino, and the Pedro Jiménez. Now, it is true, of course, that this process takes place in barrels that have previously contained Pedro Jiménez, but the extraction of the Pedro Jiménez from the barrels really is quite small, and what really affects the, the balance, overall balance and finish of the wine is this small edition of the 13% of Pedro Ximénez.
0: And what was the impetus to do such a bottling of which another one I'm not aware in the region. No, it's es,
2: es un vino histórico de González O sea, la solera, la solera de Apóstoles data de 1845. Realmente es un vino histórico, es un vino que después la clasificación de palo cortado y la regulación por parte del El... Consejo Regulador es posterior y realmente lo que es un
3: Really, it's a, it's a unique bottling. There isn't anything like it in the region. And importantly, it's an incredibly historic wine for González Baez. I mean, we've been producing Apostoles in this way since 1845, which, of course, vastly predates the denomination of origin. And so for us is, is something that not only is unique, but is also incredibly uh, historic for our bodega and also can be, well, in my opinion creates the perfect harmony of sugar and sweetness from the PX with incredible potency of character from the Palo Cortado. Overall, just a a perfect balance.
0: In a time before filtration, before temperature control, a way of kind of tempering the bracing character of a floor sherry by maybe adding something a little sweet to kind of balance it out, like a historical method of making a balanced wine absolutely yeah, absolutely like de acuerdo
2: era una manera de hacer amable un vino con un gran carácter
3: exactly it was a, it was a way of creating lovely balance in a wine that was was in its origins just powerfully powerfully expressive
0: And one of the things that's a little different about González Bias is that you source Pedro Jiménez from Jerez, which a lot of people would get it from Montilla. Is that right?
2: Bueno, no no es absolutamente así. No es totalmente cierto.
0: Eh, Hay una relación...
3: It's not exactly like that. In fact, there's a there's an interesting agreement between the denomination of origin of Montilla and the denomination of origin of Jerez that permits wineries to be able to buy their wine um, from grapes grown in Montilla. Also, with the the part the, the initial fermentation that partial small partial fermentation already in place, the wines are brought into Jerez. Uh, we ourselves, we have González Baez has 16 uh, hectares of Pedro Jimenez planted uh, in the region of Jerez uh, but we are not yet completely self sufficient and we still do uh, we still are required to uh, purchase some uh, some of the Pedro Jimenez from the region of Montilla uh, but we do hope that with time, perhaps in five or six, even seven years, we'll be completely self-sufficient with our needs for Pedro Jiménez, uh, with our own vines in our own land, our own vineyard uh, terroir in the region of Jerez.
0: And what would be the difference between Pedro Jiménez grapes from Mantilla and Pedro Jiménez grapes from Jerez? Bueno, la,
2: la varietal es la misma. Realmente el único problema es que el cultivo de la Pedro Jiménez
3: Well, really, uh, the first important difference is that it's an incredibly expensive process, the cultivation of Pedro Jiménez. Firstly, you have to leave the uh, grapes on the vine for longer to mature further. And then, of course, you have this incredibly labor-intensive process of the soleo, in which after harvest, the grapes are dried out in the sun and they're turned Bunch by bunch by hand to a point where they've lost up to 40% of their content in water through evaporation to exposure to the sun.
2: Eh, somos
3: conscientes
2: de que es muy caro, pero que González había asumido ese riesgo. Somos la única bodega que tiene plantación de Pedro Jiménez Jerez, y aunque la maduración de la Pedro Jiménez es más tardía, porque somos eh, una región muy cercana al mar, por lo tanto tiene menos intensidad solar a la hora del soleo, pues González vía ha apostado por el reto de tener Pedro Jiménez propio desde la viña hasta la botella.
3: And then of course secondly is the the difference between the two terroirs of Montilla and Jerez. We're talking about Montilla which is a, a region that's quite substantially more inland uh, and therefore has a hotter climate and therefore you can expect a much uh, faster maturation phase and you can also uh, expect a, a quicker drying process in Soleo whereas in Jerez uh, the maturation of the grape takes longer and then uh, of consequence of course uh, the drying of the grapes takes a little bit longer as well all of this together these factors together mean that it's quite an investment on the part of the winery at Gonzalez Byass with what we are trying to achieve in the region, we are able to absorb this cost, um, but it is uh, it is certainly very challenging, and that makes us part of the reason, really, why we're the only winery at this stage that are doing this process.
0: You also make the Noe. How should I understand that in the context of the larger scale of the production?
2: Un vino muy muy exclusivo con una producción muy pequeña, y es tenemos un vino una marca anterior.
3: The relationship of of Noé, V.O.R.S. Pedro Jiménez to the winery, you know, it can be explained almost as a parallel to the relationship between Tio Pepe and Del Duque, V.O.R.S. Amontillado. We indeed have a a younger Pedro Jiménez, which is Nectar, which is aged to eight years. And the wine from the Solera of Nectar will replenish the Solera of Noé which is our VRS over 30 years aged Pedro Jiménez. I, I always say, in fact, that people will say to me that Noé is one of the great dessert wines of the world. I don't agree at all. I, I think it's, it's the dessert itself.
0: Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you, was how would you use it in the context of a meal? And for you, it's a standalone beverage. <inaudible> <inaudible> Se puede tomar
2: solo. Eh? Eh, yo muchas veces le recomiendo a los... Fumadores, que cada vez hay menos. Un buen habano, un buen cohiba.
3: Indeed, it's a wine that's just phenomenal on its own. It's so potent. But also, you know, it lends itself to some remarkable pairings, as you can imagine. Uh, to the smokers, each day there are less of them. Uh, I would recommend a, a good Cuban Havana cigar, Um, but it also goes fantastically well with with contrasting lighter dishes such as, of course, ice creams. But uh, one of my own personal favorites is to pair it by extreme contrast with uh, acidic fruits. So, you know, anything that will bring acidity, which will give a lift to these heavy, richer, sweeter wines, um, such as the raspberries and exotic citrus fruits. So should I understand both
0: Palomino Fino and Pedro Jimenez as, as low acid grape varieties? es eh, Jerez
2: increíblemente la Palomino Fino y la Pedro Jimenez y la Moscatel, que es la tercera variedad, son unas variedades y un fino con una
3: Absolutely, I mean it's really incredible in the region of Jerez, uh, the between the three varietals of the Palomino Fino and the Pedro Jiménez and the Moscatel, just how low the uh, the the acid is on these young wines. You know, we're talking about uh, volatile acid in a Palomino Fino, for example, of point uh, one eight or or point two, going to in the case of the Pedro Jiménez, point uh, eight, for example. Uh, it's uh, incredibly low.
2: Eh, realmente confunden mucho. Muchas personas piensan Que los vinos de Jerez son vinos ácidos, porque le, le aporta frescura en boca. Y no es acidez, es salinidad fundamentalmente.
3: A lot of people will will see a sherry as a really acidic wine because it has this, uh, it has this certain effect on the palate. But really it is a, a sense of freshness that we derive principally from the salinity of the wines found from the salinity of Ottawa. Our, our
0: so, if they were high acid grape varieties, do you think the floor would fail to set on them?
2: Well, really, la flor tiene unos límites de tolerancia muy, muy delicados.
3: Tiene el límite de alcohol. The flor, indeed, itself is incredibly sensitive and it has various parameters, which each one, indeed, is, is very sensitive to, to its environment. So, for example, you it has a tolerance of alcohol of around 16% by volume. You go above this rate and you create a hostile environment for it to to survive in. Indeed, if if the temperatures rise above 26, 27 degrees Celsius, that can start to be very problematic as well. And by extension, as you say exactly, a higher acid wine would create a, a very problematic environment for the reproduction of floor yeast. Todos sabemos que en el mundo del vino... In el mundo of los vinos tranquilos,
2: en muchas zonas, en vendimias muy básicas, poco ácidas, se acidifica el vino porque, de alguna manera, es un protector ¿eh? del vino.
3: ¿eh? As we all know, in in, in wine regions all, all around all around the world, when you have a less than ideal harvest, you have a process of acidification where acid is added to the wines because it's an important component in to be able to protect the wines as they age.
0: You've spoken a couple times about the importance to you of aroma, both in your childhood home and in the terms of the harvest when you receive grapes. But you've also told us that, that the soleras often feed into each other. One Solera becomes later another Solera of a different kind of wine over time. How do the aromas change as grapes move into the winery and spend so much time in the bodega? What is the difference of aroma? van cambiando evidentemente
2: cuando tenemos un vino joven, nosotros en Jerez le llamamos mosto, no es mosto, es el vino joven del año.
3: Absolutely, there's there's an important evolution of aromas here. When the young wines begin their life with us in the winery, or as we call them in Jerez, we call them musts. You know, they're not musts, they're after fermentation, this is the word we, we use for them. They come with powerful aromas of apple, of green apple, of fresh primary fruit. And as they go on to age in the, in the winery, they we of course see the development of the flor yeast, uh, and as its metabolism increases, we then start to see the aromas produced by the reproduction of the flor yeast taking over these primary aromas. So we start to move more into baking aromas, for example.
2: Hay una cata muy demostrativa, que es catar, La solera desde la cuarta criadera hasta la solera, cuarta, tercera, segunda y solera. Y puedes ver cómo van cambiando todos esos aromas en la, en, la, en la copa. ¿Cómo?
3: There's indeed a very demonstrative tasting, which you can do in the winery, of course, where you taste each of the different layers of the criaderas. So that's to say, beginning with the fourth criadera uh, into the third criadera and the second criadera, alongside the solero, the final layer where we draw the wine from. And you can see just how these young, youthful, primary aromas will develop as the flor yeast begins to take over the, uh, the aroma profile of the wine and move it into the uh, secondary aromas of these baking aromas, for example.
0: So, flor protects the palate of the wine from oxidation, but totally changes the aroma of the wine. Claro, lo cambia
2: absolutamente. ¿eh? Lo cambia totalmente. La flor no se parece en nada. Cuando vamos catando y no vamos comparando, nos puede parecer que no hay tanto cambio. Cuando tú pruebas una cuarta criadera, y pruebas la solera, ve la gran diferencia
3: que hay. Absolutely. The, the, the difference is huge. It's, it's very dramatic change. And you can see this by, uh, by tasting the 4th the era alongside the Solera. You'll see just how much that profile completely changes uh, through its development, through its aging under the, under the flor East.
0: So you also, as you previously referred to, have a large collection of vintage sherries at the winery spanning several decades. If I were to understand a a vintage release as opposed to a Solera release, what would I be thinking about? What are the differences in terms of organoleptic qualities of the actual wine?
2: Realmente, un vino dañada es la singularidad del año. En Jerez, como te comentaba antes, hasta...
3: So really, a vintage sherry can be understood as being absolutely... Uh, singular to that one vintage. Now remember that up until uh, up until the, the mid part of the 19th century almost all of sherry was being sold in, in the vintage system. And uh, since the very foundation of Gonzalez Byass uh, we we've been incredibly fortunate to have been maintaining each year an important collection of vintage sherries. So we have just the most fascinating collection of wines from 1840, from 1845, scattered throughout some of the most special vintages of the 19th century. We have the complete collection from the 20th century, uh, which is something we're incredibly fortunate to have. And, well, what do we do with these wines? Well, every three or four years, we'll go tasting through the winery and we'll select a a very special vintage, uh, which we will release in a small limited release to take these wines out to show people. The current wine that, that we have is the, um, the Palo Cortado.
0: But I mean, is it a different kind of thing in terms of taste? If I were to give you two glasses, I would ask you to taste it blind and tell me which of the two was the vintage release and which was the Solera release of somewhat comparable age. Would you be able to do that? And why would you be able to tell the difference?
2: So,
3: really, the production of these vintage cherries depends on how they've been produced in the very beginning, of course. And it, it, with us, in our case, in González Bias, the way that these wines are selected is that we will take the most delicate, the most special, the most uh, fine and elegant of our wines that would otherwise have been destined for biological aging. And we will then treat these wines in a more in a production aging method that would be more applicable normally to oxidatively aged wines. So we would therefore select the free-run juice, some of the most special terroir-selected uh, free-run juice that we have with a very light first press, for example, that gives us a wine... That as it ages, oxidatively will in fact be very light on the palate for a wine of this, of this aging style, yet with the most incredibly elegant and aromatic potency on the nose.
0: So you told me that in 1980, there were 12,000 hectare of vines in the Jerez area, and now there's half of that. Do you... Foresee the vineyard area of the region getting larger once again now that sherry seems to be popular.
2: No, yo creo que ahora está muy ajustado. ¿eh? Realmente, cuando el viñedo sea sobredimensionado ¿eh? para para grandes producciones, al final no ha acarreado nada bueno. Yo creo que con el volumen de venta que tiene Jerez ahora y el volumen de viña plantada está muy equilibrado. Yo creo que los pasos de crecimiento habrá que medirlo mucho en el futuro.
3: I think now we're at a stage where the vineyard area has really found its balance with the production of the wines. There was certainly uh, huge amounts of uh, overproduction and overgrowing back when uh, things started to change in the market, and now with the reduction that we've seen, we've come to a point, in my opinion, where we're at a really very good balance between the vineyard area that we have and the sales demand that we have. Now, this is very balanced at this time. So to look to the future and to see any growth in vineyard space, for example, would be something that would happen much further down the line and would have to be done slowly and carefully.
0: And what else might the future imply for gonzalez BS? Family-run company, two generations making the wine... Fundamentalmente,
2: fíjate, en González ya estamos ya en la quinta generación actualmente trabajando de la familia González, nuestro presidente y nuestro vicepresidente pertenecen
3: well, what do we expect from the future? Well, really, we we are now in the fifth generation of uh, the González family and have been running González Bayer since 1835. Our president and our, and our vice president are both from that fifth generation, and we now have the sixth generation and the seventh generation with us in the world. And so really what we can expect from them in the future is a continuation of the work that is is already in place. Uh, that is, you could describe it as the opening of a fan from the region of Jerez into other regions of Spain uh, on the Spanish wine making map. We have uh, Bodegas Beronia in La Rioja. We have uh, Cava Villarnao in the San Sorni uh, region of Catalonia. Um, Finca Constancia in Castilla, Finca Moncloa in the region of, of, of Cadiz and Viñas del Vero up in the denomination of origin of Somontano. And really this is something that's will certainly continue to be important through the development and the future of, of González bias is this diversification. However, the heart of the company is still in Jerez. This is where we are all based, still in Jerez. It's where our, our, our president is, is still based. And in some way, you can say that, uh, that, that Jerez and our winery, González Bayas, will remain the heart and soul of our wine projects. As the company continues to develop and grow, everything comes back to Jerez, which really defines the, the philosophy of the company.
0: Antonio Flores of Gonzales, B.S. He enjoyed returning to a home that smelled like sherry, and he dreamed about his father leaving the door open to the winery. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, thank you, Levy. Antonio Flores of Gonzales, B.S. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose. Want to offer some special thanks to Christopher Canali Parola for translating this interview with Antonio Flores. Also, I want to give a shout out to Peter Leem and Jesus Barquín, whose book *Sherry Manzanilla and Mantilla was very helpful when I was preparing questions for this interview. Great book.
2: Yo siempre digo unas palabras de un poeta eh, americano, sudamericano, Tavio Paz, que decía que la única patria que tiene el ser humano es su infancia.